And just thank you for the music today. My goodness, what bless I always afraid after we have this kind of a worship service, I'm just gonna get up and mess it up somehow or another. It's just so good. Ruth, didn't you enjoy that? Uh, don't you love that song, The Power of the Cross? First time I ever heard that song, I just about came totally undone. It's just such a powerful, powerful song. Well, well I'll try to be uh, careful this morning and uh, stay within the same spirit of uh, worship that we've been in. The Apostle Paul said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And then he described that gospel. He said, I delivered to you what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And then he was raised again on the third day. We sing a song sometimes, a chorus of it says, Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising again. Rising again, he... Well, how's it go? My mind just slipped, slipped out, huh? Rising again, he justified freely. And someday he's coming. Oh, glorious day. That's the gospel. I have preached many, many sermons, probably hundreds of sermons on the cross. Did one last Sunday, in fact. And I've preached many sermons on the fact that God raised him from the dead. I'm not certain that I've ever preached a sermon on the phrase, and he was buried. But today, I want us to think about the burial of Jesus. It's uh, recorded in all four of the Gospels, so we'll look at it in all four of the Gospels. And I know this is a lot of Scripture reading today, but man, isn't that good? You can't really improve on the Scripture. Sometimes us preachers, we read a passage and then we spend the rest of the time giving our thoughts. Maybe we'd just be better off a lot of times just to stick with just the Scripture. But I want you to listen to it in Matthew's account. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. By the way, we're going to meet a man in this passage of Scripture. It's only mentioned in reference to the burial of Jesus, and yet we're told a good bit about him. And my message today is going to be kind of on how, how God buried his son, the burial of Jesus, and one of the key figures there. So... When it was evening, by the way, Jesus was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. He hung on the cross for six hours. At noon, darkness covered the whole earth until Jesus cried out, It is finished, and then he died. And he died at his chosen time. He died at exactly 3 o'clock 
in the afternoon, which, as I told you last week, was the very moment that the Passover lambs all throughout Israel were having their throats cut to be pre prepared for Passover that night. So, uh, so Jesus actually chose his time to die. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. He could have escaped all of the agony of Calvary. He could have escaped all of the shame and pain of Golgotha. He could have called ten legions of angels, the Bible says, to fight for him and to set him free. But had he done so, he could have not saved us. And they said while he was hanging on the cross, he saved others. Can't he save himself? And the answer was no. He can't do both. If he saves himself, he can't save us. And in order to save us, he must suffer and drink this cup of the wrath of God and take our place and our death on the cross. So, 3 o'clock, Jesus dies. By a few minutes after 3, the soldiers come to break the legs of those that are hanging on the cross because the Sabbath begins in three hours. And so, in order to get the bodies off the cross, they go and they break the legs of the thief that's hanging to the right of Jesus and the thief that's hanging to the left of Jesus just cruelly take some huge, like a two-by-four or a two-by-six and just hit them, break the leg, crack the bones into them. Can you imagine? And then they're unable to push themselves up to get a breath of air and they suffocate rather quickly. But the Bible says when they came to Jesus, got ready to break his legs, they discovered that he was already dead. And these Roman soldiers had seen death, and they knew death, and they recognized that he was dead. But just to make certain, one of the soldiers that was standing nearby with a lance or a spear punched him in the side, and water and blood came gushing out and just... Uh, indication of a heart totally that has collapsed and broken. And they realized that he was dead. And so now he is, it's a little after 3 o'clock. Something has to be done with his body. Normally when people were crucified, they were taken down off the cross and thrown into the city garbage dump, a place called Gehenna. And they were just, their bodies were left there as food for vultures, and, uh, wild animals, or to be consumed by the fire. But, back to our text, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate. And he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered 
it to be given to him. And then Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and he laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They were watching what he was doing. And the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb be made secure until after the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, Boy, I love this verse. You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. You go and make absolutely certain that it is secure. And so they went, and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now that's Mark's. That's uh, Matthew's account. Now, let's come to Mark's account. This is the text that we've been studying, the book we've been studying. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, a lot of this is going to sound redundant, but you'll pick up a little extra information along the way. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Now we learn here that he is actually a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, the ruling court of Israel, the one that had recently condemned Jesus to death, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died and summoning the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where it was laid. Now let's listen to Luke's account, the same event. Luke Chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Luke, uh, yeah, 23, beginning in verse 50. 
Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He was a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Now we don't know exactly how. Obviously, we don't know that he was present and he voted against it. More likely, he wasn't even present because, remember, they held the trial in the midnight hours from like 1 o'clock in the morning until 5 in the morning. And uh, it's possible that he, them knowing that he and maybe others were sympathetic to Jesus, they didn't summon them. They only had to have a quorum and they didn't have to have everybody there. He had not consented to their decision and action for he was looking for the kingdom of God. Here was a man that was looking for the kingdom. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Let me just say that many times family tombs would be used to bury many different people in. They would bury a body in there, and then after about a year, after the body had totally decomposed, they would go in and gather the bones together and put them in a little box called an ossuary, and then they would use that tomb again and again and again for family members. But this was a tomb, the Bible says, that no one had ever yet been laid in it. There's its first use. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. That is, the Sabbath was coming on. It's by it's now 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how he laid the body. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments and on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now let's finally listen to how John accounts this story. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So he was a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus. He believed Jesus was the Messiah. He was looking for the kingdom of God, but he kept it quiet. He was a secret disciple. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away the body of Jesus. And also Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. He also was a member of the Sanhedrin, that council, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. The two of them came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And When people were buried in that day, they placed around their body a, a, a lot of... Uh, herbs and spices to actually keep the body from smelling as it began to decompose. 
So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now that's the record of the burial of Jesus. And I want you to I want you to know this. In the Bible, there are two kinds of workings of God. One is miraculous works of the supernatural uh, uh, sovereignty, where God does something that totally defies all the laws of nature and science and everything like that, like the plagues on Egypt, or like the speaking of the universe into existence, or, or like the parting of the Red Sea, or like the stilling of a storm, or the healing of a leper, or giving sight to a blind man, or raising the dead. Those are are supernatural, sovereign miracles that only God can do. I mean, they're just amazing. But that's not the only way God works. He works in another way that we call providential workings. Now understand this. God has the whole of history, past, present, and future, already in his sight, in his mind, and in his will. He knows everything. The Bible says he knows the end from the beginning. God knows exactly where he's going with the entire human story. And he works to move everything in that direction. One of our favorite verses, Romans 8.28 says, For we know, and we know, that God is working all things together for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. See, God has a purpose. And, and the thing about it is that we don't ever get the chance to see really behind the scenes. We see life as it's happening, and things happen, and we say, that's terrible. But if we could see it from heaven's perspective, we would say God is working. When Joseph, hated by his brothers, were sold into slavery and then taken into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in prison for 15 or 16 years, I'm sure nobody said, wow, God's really got his hand on you. In fact, if anything, he may have felt like I'm in the grip of the devil. But later, Joseph himself said to his brothers, don't be afraid because I see now that though you meant it for evil, God actually meant it for good. And that's encouraging to me. It's encouraging to me when things have happened in my life that I would never have chosen, that I did not want to happen, 
And yet I look back on it and I say, many of the times I can say, I see clearly now how God was using that in my life. It was very painful at the time, but I see that God was at work accomplishing his purpose. Now, I said usually because there are some things that I I still hadn't seen yet. But I believe with all my heart that someday, from heaven's perspective, I'll look at every event in my life, even the most treacherous, the most betrayal, the, the worst treatment, the worst accidents, everything. And I'll look back at it and I'll say, it makes sense now. There's a song we sing sometimes called, We'll Understand It Better By and By. Trials dark on every hand, things that we cannot understand. But you see, someday we'll see it from heaven's perspective. Richard, I've thought about this with preparing this sermon. Joyce is on my mind so much. We look at what happened, her falling off that ladder, breaking her neck and being paralyzed at this point. And we say, God, can any good come out of that? And I know the answer is of course, of course. God is working providentially in everything. Not most things, not many things, in everything. And he does it in a way that accomplishes his purpose without violating the will of the people who are involved. Now, that is a mystery, isn't it? The soldiers who crucified Jesus were responsible for their cruel act. Judas, who betrayed Jesus and sold him for 30 pieces of silver, was responsible for his cowardly betrayal. And yet, God providentially used his choice to accomplish God's purpose. Judas's choice to accomplish God's purpose. You should see that. God providentially used the cowardice of Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent and who should have had the courage to say, I'm not going to crucify an innocent man. But Pilate said, I'm washing my hands of the whole thing. You take him and crucify him. And Pilate was responsible for his choice. God did not make him do that. He did that. But God used the cowardly act of Pilate to accomplish his eternal purpose. And we could say that about everything that happened. And one way we know about God's providence 
is that even before Jesus was born, there were 333, it's easy to remember, 333, 333 Old Testament prophecies describing the Messiah, the, the life, the birth, the place of the birth, the method of death, everything. There were 333 Old Testament passages that describe the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. We just heard some of them this morning. And, for instance, the Bible says in Psalm 34:20, He keeps all his bones... And not one of them will be broken. Speaking of the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Here they came to break the legs of these men on the cross, including Jesus. But God had said, you're not going to break the Messiah's legs. Not one of his bones will be broken. So when they came to break his bones... Jesus was already dead. And by the way, why, why could, would they not break any of his bones? Because in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, the Bible talks about the Passover lamb and how that lamb was to be sacrificed on that very day that Jesus died. He said, it shall be eaten in one house and you shall take not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb was to not have a bone broken and Jesus was our ultimate Passover lamb. And so none of his bones could be broken. But he would be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says they will weep over him, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And he was pierced, but none of his bones were broken. And then Isaiah 53 9, that Stephanie read us a while ago, said, They will make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. A rich man. He was buried like a criminal. But he was with a rich man in his death, buried in a rich man's tomb. See, all of this, all of this, God was moving events to fulfill his purpose. And listen, I want you to know, folks, he's doing that in your life today, too. Do you know that God does have a purpose for you? That purpose, according to Romans 8.29, is to conform you to the image of his son. And he is working in every event of your life to move you in that direction. And I just want to close by thinking about Joseph of Arimathea for just a moment. He's a, he was a secret disciple. But the Bible says he took courage. I just want to challenge all of us to take courage today. 
And uh, he asked for the body of Jesus. And he took that body down off the cross. I've tried to imagine this week what that must have been like. To take a beaten, crucified, thorn-pierced, scourged body. There would be no place you could touch that body without getting blood on you. And uh, maybe put a ladder up and have to pull the spikes out of his hands, out of his feet. Take him in your arms or a rope or something wrapped around him take that body down off the cross and then wash it anoint it wrap it and take it and put it in your own tomb and all the time knowing that the very people who had ordered his death are looking at you saying you're a traitor you'll pay for this it was costly for Joseph to do what he did I'm sure it cost him his reputation it cost him perhaps his position on the council it may have cost him some social outcast, being a social outcast. It may have cost him a lot of his money. Seventy-five pounds of ointments, expensive ointments, and then his own tomb, although he wasn't planning on staying in there very long. And my application to me this week has been I don't want to be a secret follower of Jesus I want to be willing to have his blood on me I want to be willing to publicly personally identify myself with Jesus no matter what it costs And if it means that I'll be rejected by some for it, that's fine. If it means that I might lose something, that's fine. I want to so identify with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection that I can take courage and do what needs to be done. And I'll just say this that I our culture our American culture is moving away from God and it has been for 50 years but it's moving even faster right now there have been a few things that seems like God is providentially put in place to kind of slow it down but our culture as a whole entertainment wise Music-wise, media-wise, and just about every-wise 
is moving further and further and further away from God. Already in some Western nations, they are talking about outlawing the reading of sections of the Bible. And in some places, rewriting sections of the Bible because it contains hate speech. And I'm just saying that all of us within the next few years are going to come to a place where we have to make a decision. Will I just secretly go along as Joseph had done? Or will I take courage and say, I'm going to stand for the body of Christ, which is the church today. And I just charge myself and all of us to take lessons from Joseph of Arimathea and say, I will take a stand. And if it costs me, it costs me. But my love for Jesus will not let me stay silent. I must speak in his behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for courage, for boldness. I know that in the early church, when the disciples gathered after the day of Pentecost and they prayed together, they did not pray for security. They did not pray for safety. They did not pray for deliverance. But they prayed for boldness and for courage. That they might be able to clearly speak the message of the love of Jesus and his victory over sin and death. And I pray that for myself and for each of us here in this church. Give us boldness. Help us. I don't mean arrogance. I don't mean uh, to be intentionally offensive, but give us boldness to speak the truth and to stand for Jesus. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.